a series on Genesis 4 to 11. You have an outline of what I'm going to say in your uh, handouts. You came in and if you have a Bible, it would be good to have that open in front of you as well. As we come to God's Word, let's pray for his help to understand. Our Father, creator of the whole world, we thank you that you have not kept yourself in the dark, that you have revealed yourself. We pray that as today we look at your word, you would help us to understand it, and give us hearts and minds to live in the light of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. been uh, thinking about some big questions in these three weeks. What is wrong with the world? You may have found yourself asking that question. What is God doing about what is wrong with the world? And today I want want us to think about the question, what hope is there for such a divided world? It doesn't take uh, much looking at the TV news or reading a newspaper to know that the world is a divided world. In the century just past, there are literally hundreds of wars. We tend to have this view that we're becoming more civilised, but we seem to be getting better at working out ways of fighting each other. Tribes against tribes. Nation against nation. The Balkans. Russia. Central Asia. Middle East. Afghanistan, Africa, Republic of Congo. Literally millions are killed each year through national conflict. Either civil war between tribes and different groups within the one country or wars between nations. I don't know about you, it's, it's almost... I give up thinking about it. I'm not sure, is there anything I can do about it? It's sad, it's disturbing. Here in Australia we're quite set apart from it, aren't we? We're an island out in the middle of nowhere. That's how everybody else in the world thinks about us. And we're kind of cut off from all of this. I think that's why Bali really went to the heart of our consciousness. It was close. There are strands involved. We live in a divided world. What hope is there for it? Where is it going to end? It doesn't seem to be getting better. That's the question that I think is raised by today's section of Genesis 4 to 11. Uh, I've given you again the structure that we started with at the beginning of Genesis 4 to 11. We've looked at the first three boxes so far. Today we're going to look at the last two boxes. Basically the end of chapter 9 through the beginning of chapter 12. And as with uh, the first two boxes, we have here a mixture of narratives and genealogies. In fact, there's more genealogy in this material than there is narrative. It's very intriguing. You remember so far in this series, we began with Adam and Eve and their sons. And the section has traced how they multiplied and increased, such that there were many people, but sin and death also spread with the spread of humans. And spread to a point where what God saw was not a good creation, but a world full of corruption and violence. Last week we read of how God judged that world 
particularly the source of that corruption, human beings, for their denial of the Creator. He destroyed them and all living things by sending this great flood. Except for those in a big box that he told Noah to build. And we saw last week how the flood narrowed the focus. Narrowed the focus of attention down to one man, his wife and their sons. And I posed the question, what sort of world is this post-flood world? What sort of world would be? Is it the same as as before back in the garden, before Adam and Eve disobeyed God? Is that the sort of world we're in now? Is it a new start? Or is it more like the situation outside the garden, where sin and death seem to have an inevitable hold on humans? Already we've seen it's been described in a way that does suggest a new start. There's a rescue of Noah. There's a command to increase and multiply. Noah has been exemplary in his behaviour. He walked with God. I guess the question that's answered in today's section is, what about Noah's kids? What about the next generation? Will history repeat itself? Will it be like Adam and Eve's kids? Will history repeat itself? And that's where the narrative focuses on this next generation, Noah's sons. We pick up the story in 9.18, chapter 9.18. The sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham and Jacob. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah and from these the whole earth was peopled. (coughs) Up until now, Noah's sons have been a bit like passengers in the narrative, literally in the ark, but also they haven't played much of a part but now they're known by name. They're named Shem, Ham and Japheth. Ham's son Canaan is also mentioned, specifically because he becomes an unwitting player in what unfolds next. And notice how they're uh, specifically identified as a new start. It's quite conscious. From these the whole earth was peopled after the flood. That's a fulfilment of God's in- stated intention after the flood for humans to increase and multiply but it also anticipates the spread of humans throughout the world again, which is related in chapters 10 and 11. The kind of the hinge that picks up where we've come from and sets us forward to what's going to happen. The characters are introduced. Now a new episode unfolds, starting verse 20. Noah, a man of the soil, was the first to plant a vineyard. He drank some of the wine and became drunk, and he lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, lowest of slaves shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed by the Lord, my God, be Shem, and let Canaan be his slave. May God, may God make space for Jacob, and let him live in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his slave. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years, and all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. How'd you go listening to that episode? I don't know about you, but I've found many parts of this section to be genuinely... Uh, well, to put it politely, intriguing. It could say weird, actually. Could be more accurate. It's quite weird to us, isn't it, this stuff? You got the picture, though. Noah gets drunk and lies semi-naked in his tent. 
One of his sons sees him in that state, goes to tell the others. The others' reaction to that, on hearing that news, they go and get a cloak, they stand side by side, they put the cloak over their shoulders, walk backwards into the tent and get the cloak to cover their father and then get out of there so they don't see him. Noah wakes up, finds out what the first son did and declares a curse on that son's kid. Go figure. It's weird stuff, isn't it? What's going on? What's the the issue here? Is the problem with Noah? Has Noah done something wrong? He got drunk. And uh, he's sleeping in what you might call an embarrassing state. Is his reaction, his curse on his kid's son, just a father's blustery attempt to cover up for his mistakes? Uh, I know what that's like. I've done that many a time. Is that what's going on here? Well, I don't actually think the problem is with Noah primarily. Certainly not with his drinking of wine. Wine is elsewhere seen as a good gift of God. Although getting drunk is not commended, at least it presents the previously squeaky clean Noah as a man with weakness attached. At least it does that. But I don't think the narrative focuses on him. He's not the main problem. It seems to be assumed that he acted as you would expect him to act in the situation. In the days of Noah, as in our own culture, as a matter of fact, to be seen naked is a shameful thing. And the sensitivity about nakedness automatically takes us back to Adam and Eve in the garden. One of the immediate consequences of them asserting their independence from God and disobeying him was that they knew they were naked. And they were ashamed, says the text. They were ashamed of it. (coughs) There was shame introduced into their relationship. They had to make a form of covering to hide each other. There's a link of shame and nakedness which has continued through the flood. Noah's brokenness and his nakedness at least remind us that he's not immune from the effects of sin that started with Adam and Eve. But again, the focus is not on Noah. It's on what his son Ham did. What did Ham do wrong? Well, he handled what he saw in the wrong way. There's a deliberate contrast, if you listen to that uh, story, there's a contrast between how Ham handled, handled the situation of seeing his father's nakedness and how his brothers handle the situation of hearing about their father's nakedness. Ham sees his father's nakedness while his brothers go out of their way to make sure they don't see it. Ham goes and blabs about his father's nakedness. His brothers take action to cover their father up. Ham goes, sees, goes and talks in a way that multiplies his father's disgrace. His brothers, they hear, go without seeing and cover up their father's disgrace. There's quite a contrast there in the telling of it. It loses a lot in its cross-cultural translation, I I realise that, but there's a serious disrespect for the father shown here by Ham. It's not a small matter. You get a sense of the seriousness by Noah's reaction to it. Because when Noah learns of it, he disciplines his youngest son by pronouncing a curse on his son, Ham's son, Canaan. Ham's son, Canaan, will be a slave to, to Ham's brothers. Now, when, we, when you hear the word curse, it's not like a Harry Potter curse, you know, where they break out in pimples that spell a word on the face or whatever it might be. Uh, this is not about magic, these curses. It's a pronouncement 
about the future order in the family. You know, these were the days. These were the days when a father's word really meant something. You know, it had real effect. You know, a pronouncement meant something for the future, like, I can't even get my kids to clean their teeth, but these were great days. <laughs> Let alone, I, I can't imagine declaring what the relationship will be between my sons for the next few decades. That's way out on left field, that one. But he pronounces this order in the family. And I wonder if you imagine how Canaan might have felt. <laughs> Canaan, he wasn't even there. What did I do? I need to deserve this. Why curse Canaan and not Ham? There are all sorts of possibilities. It could be because Noah knows that God himself has made promises to to bless Noah's sons, including Ham. And to curse what God has blessed may be a bit presumptuous on Noah's part. And there may also be some appropriateness between the youngest son of Noah's youngest son is cursed. Whatever the reason, the Israelites who have been reading this account would have recognised the name Canaan and cheered. In chapter 10 we find out much more about the descendants of Canaan to find out why Israel might have cheered. But for now there's more going on here than just how Uncle Shem and Japheth will be served by their nephew Canaan in the future. There's an anticipation of relationships between peoples which are descended from these brothers as we'll see in chapter 10. The verse 28, 29 remind us that we're still part of that interrupted genealogy. You can see there on your <coughs> outlines the structure. Remember there was a long genealogy in Genesis 4.25 to 4.32 which had a definite form and that's picked up again here and uh, picked up again in Genesis 10. We're reminded that this is the end of that genealogy. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's in the same form. When F had lived X years, he became the father of S. It's there on your outlines. You see that form? It picks that up again and continues it. We could put together the entry from Noah from the, the bits in the, in the narrative almost. There's slight variations, but in 532, you've got the after Noah was 500 years old, Noah became the father of Shem, Ham and Japheth. There's a big interruption with the flood. In the middle of the flood account, 76, Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came on the earth. Then we pick it up here in the end of chapter 9, 28. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. We're back. We're in the same genealogy. This is part of the same story. It tells us that that pre-flood pattern of life, of generations, and even of death, continues post-flood. Noah died. Where does that strange little story get us? What's going on? We're getting some answers to our question, aren't we? Of what situation are we in after the flood? The very post-flood event involves drunkenness, nakedness, gossip, disrespect for parents, another curse, and enmity between the families of the earth. Oh, and death. Very first episode, it's all there. It hasn't started all that well, really. It seems that sin has survived the flood and remains a player in God's world. But it also anticipates what unfolds in chapter 10. Chapter 10 is all about the spread of Noah's son's descendants. How will that curse 
play out in the family line, the curse about Canaan and Ham and his brothers. Have you got chapter 10 open in front of you? I just, just want you to cast your eyes down it. Uh, it appears at first glance to be a gracious provision by God for insomniacs, doesn't it? Chapter 10, if you look down it, it's just it's a list of 70 descendants of Noah. It's a long list, all 32 verses. Uh, and it's a selective genealogy. It doesn't go through all the descendants, right? It could be a lot longer. Once it gets to Noah's son's grandsons, it only picks one or two from each generation. You'll be glad to know. It divides into three parts, one for each of Noah's sons, and each part uh, introduced by the same formula, the descendants of Shem, Ham, Japheth, and concludes these are the descendants of whoever it is. Joseph, Japheth's family is covered relatively quickly in verses 2 to 5, Ham in verses 6 to 20, and Shem in verses 21 to 31. So now we're going to go through chapter 10 and look at each name in detail and work out what it's all about. No, no, I'm just taking you away. That would really put you to sleep. No, we're not going to do that. What is it about, though? It's there. We've got to do something with it. Introduction and conclusion gives us some insight into what the writer's interest is here in this long list. Look at 10 verse 1. These are the descendants of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham and Japheth, Children were born to them after the flood. These are the children born to Noah's sons after the flood. That takes, that takes us back to 9, verse 18 and 19. These are the sons of Noah who went out of the ark, Shem, Ham and Japheth. These three were, were the sons of Noah and from these the whole earth was peopled. That's the interest of this, how the whole earth was peopled. They represent a new star. This chapter fits in with the story. This is how the humanity refilled the earth after the flood. That's what this is about. The conclusion supports that, 10.32. These are the families of Noah's sons according to their genealogies in their nations and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Notice there though, in verse 32, something's added. There's a concept of nations uh, and where they came from. That's, that's also part of the interest. It's more than just a family list. And when you look more closely at the list, that's a common theme. It's, it's not just individuals' names here. Verse 5 of chapter 10, just, as, just to pick an example. The descendants of Javan, Elisha, Tashish, Kidim and Rodanim, from these the coastland people spread. These are the descendants of Japheth in their lands with their own language, by their families and in their nations. That little phrase their own language, by their families, in their nations, in their lands, occurs, keeps coming back three times during the account. There's a number of common ways of denoting different people groups. That's the interest here. Geographical location, their lands, their language, their nationality, their tribe or clan. There's more than just a family tree of individuals. What's more, you take a closer look, you realise that a lot of names are actually place names, not necessarily individuals' names. Tarshish, Egypt, Nineveh, Babel, Arab. And there are plural forms used of the names. There are tribal groups mentioned. Have a look at verses 15 to 18 of chapter 10. Canaan, 
became the father of Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvites, the Zemorites, and the Hamathites. I'm glad we didn't do all the names, or I am anyway. There's tribal groups, nationalities, languages. This is about the spread of nations and peoples after the flood. What do we make of it? Well, for a start, it does give us an indication that this text was put together quite a while after the the events are described. Many of those places and names and people groups were not yet in existence when the events take place. But they clearly pick on particular places and nations and tribes which were were familiar to the Israelites who would have been reading this material the first time. This is a reminder that it's part of a national story for Israel and it's an account of origins and an explanation of their place in the world as a nation among all these other nations. But in the context of the narrative itself, chapter 10 is an indication of God's blessing. That's how it's meant to function, I think. When Noah first came out of the ark, 9 verse 1, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. What's more, he makes a covenant with Noah and all future generations that he would never again uncreate the world like he did in the flood. In a way, these descendants of Noah's sons are the results of that blessing that God pronounced to Noah and recipients of that promise, never again. But there are other things going on too. This follows on from the curse on Ham's son Canaan, doesn't it? And the blessing on Japheth and Shem, particularly Shem. This genealogy anticipates how that curse will play out. The list of tribes I just tried to read out just then, from verses 15 and 18, are Canaan's descendants. And the next verse, verse 19, locates them in a particular area. And the territory of the Canaanites, this is verse 19 of chapter 10, (coughs) extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Admar and Zebulun as far as Lasha. These are the sense of Ham by their families, their languages, their lands and their nations. It's the area which Israel later came to occupy. Just got the northern, southern and uh, eastern boundaries of that land, modern day Israel, Palestine. That's the area which Israel later came to occupy at the expense of those tribes which had settled there. That's why the Israelites would have cheered on when they heard the curse on Canaan. That Canaan would be the lowest of slaves to the sense of Shem and Faith and Jacob. There's a conflict of Noah's descendants anticipated here in this genealogy. There are some other ominous names as well. There's Egypt, there's Sodom, Gomorrah and the Philistines. They all turn up later in Israel's history as their enemies in various ways. There's another side to it. It's blessing but it anticipates difficult times ahead as well. And that other side of this blessing, of this repeopling of the earth, is confirmed in the next section of the narrative, chapter 11, verses 1 to 9. We'll move on to it. Again, an intriguing little story. 
11 verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words and they migrated. As they migrated from the east they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise we shall be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which mortals had built. And the Lord said, Look, they are one people and they have all one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language there so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore it was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. Now, immediately you're asking a question if you're reading this. What's that doing there? It seems out of order, doesn't it? When you think about it. One of the points of chapter 10 has been to show the spread of people according to their languages. And yet, chapter 11 starts with the whole earth having one language. Did you notice that? We've gone back a step. <coughs> it's not the first time we find ourselves asking what's, what's going on here. Chapter 10 tells that humans spread after the flood according to their languages, tribes, lands and natures. nations. It just states that they spread. That's what chapter 10 does. This is how the spread worked. This is where they went. These are the different groupings. Chapter 11, I think, is there to explain why they spread in this way. Where did these different languages, how did they come about? What was the impetus for their scattering in that way? On your notes you can see it's a carefully crafted narrative under the heading structure. (coughs) Again, you have the central line and either side has got lines that correspond to each other. You've got the whole earth in one language in verse 1 and you've got the Lord confusing the language of the earth and scattering them in verse 9. We've got humans coming and settling in verse 2. Verse 8, the Lord scattered them. In verse 3 and 4, the people say, Come, let us make bricks. Come, let us build a city. In verse 6 and 7, the Lord said, Come, let us go down and come, let us confuse their language. And it, it turns around, the Lord coming down to see the city and the tower. There's a story in two parts there. There's a resolve of humans to do something and then acting on it. And then there's God's resolve to stop them doing what they're doing and his action to achieve that. And the common attitude, the common element in both of those is scattering or spreading. That's the common element in both what the humans try to do and what God does. You see, the motivation for building the city and the tower is to avoid being scattered. Did you notice that? There's a specific reason to avoid being scattered. But from previous chapters, we know that scattering is not a bad thing, this spreading. <coughs> it's not a thing to be avoided. In fact, it's part of the blessing of God to increase and multiply, refill the earth after the flood. It's purposed by the Creator. You see, the problem of what these people are doing is not the height of the tower. It was their motivation for doing it. It was what that tower represented. By gathering settling, unifying they were resisting God's purpose for creation 
That's what their building and settling symbolises. That power is a declaration of self-sufficiency, a declaration of resistance to God's good purposes. In a way, we turn a full circle back to Adam and Eve, haven't we? That was their problem. A resistance to God's good purposes, an assertion of self-dependence, uh, it's not a passage about the evil of urban living and cities. I don't think that's what it's about. <clears throat> it's about the tendency of humans to unite against God. That's what it's about. The heart of this act- activity of the humans is an assertion of independence from their maker. They know how to do it better. In verse 5, the narrative turns when God... It turns, it's really interestingly described. They have this big tall tower going up to heavens. And God still has to come down to see their puny symbol of independence. It hasn't got anywhere near him. It hasn't touched God. He's got to come down to see it. They thought it was so impressive. God sees it and responds. Here's a test, isn't there, to God's promise to Noah after the flood. The flood was God's judgment on the wickedness of all humanity, but after it he promised never again to destroy the world. What will he do in, in response to this collective resistance? And he does something which, which will ensure that they can never again unify to do the same thing. He confuses their language so they can't understand each other. And when you think about this, it's a significant punishment with enormous consequences. I don't know whether you've uh, done much travelling, but when you visit a foreign country where you don't know the language, you get a sense of the distance that this puts between people. A few years back, uh, my wife and my two sons uh, visited Spain. My youngest was about six at the time, youngest son. Uh, We had some great moments in Spain. I remember we visited a magnificent ancient Moorish palace called the Alhambra in the south of Spain. Magnificent structure. And uh, I remember sitting on these ancient tiles with these Fountains cascading, beautiful tile work and looking out over the valley playing Uno with my sons. It was bizarre. It was completely bizarre. But what really, my son just didn't get it, right? He didn't get old stuff, which is not surprising. The other thing he didn't like was not being understood. The thing he put his finger on that was difficult and stressful about Spain was people didn't understand him. He couldn't communicate. He's a people kind of kid. And nearly killed him. He was really stressed. He felt this strain that language, this distance that language puts between people. The place is named Babel, which literally means mixed up, confused. That's what happened there. That's like our word Babel, I guess. And that place, that city, becomes a symbol, symbol of, the, of humanity's tendency to unite against God and his purposes. It's picked up, the role of Babel is picked up in the Old Testament by Babylon. They sound a bit alike, but the way that Babylon is described is is very Babel-like. This similar assertion of independence and self-sovereignty, self-rule, away from God. In terms of the narrative, there's further alienation. This is where it moves us forward, this Babel. There's further alienation between humans introduced to the world of Babel. And different languages and subsequent scattering of humanity serve as clear reminders of the the folly of human pride and independence from the Creator. 
It will not work resisting the Creator's purposes. But there's also, alongside that, it's a punishment, but there's a double edge to God's response. You see, there's a positive side because that scattering, that changing of language ensures that the filling of the earth that was meant to be his blessing would actually continue. The people continue to spread and it enables chapter 10 to happen. It's provision for the blessing of God as well. In chapter 11, verse 10, we pick up that interrupted genealogy that was interrupted in chapter 5. <coughs> These are the descendants of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he became the father of Akashad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after the birth of Akashad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. You see, that's the same pattern. This is the same genealogy which holds the whole section together. It's quite an appropriate place to, to finish. Through that genealogy, there's been all these developments in the creation from Anna and Eve. There's been a filling of the world with many nations. We've seen the spread of sin and death. We've seen nearly every living thing destroyed as a result. We've also seen a new start made possible through Noah's family. We've heard an everlasting promise not to destroy creation the same way. This genealogy has taken us through this section and developed the world picture. And where the genealogy stops this time again focuses on the next stage in the development. Uh, there's, a, there's just a couple of quick things to notice about the genealogy at the end of chapter 11. It's different to chapter 10, obvious, because it picks, it picks a particular line. We're back to a very particular line in the family. The sense of Shem and all the eldest after Shem. And it takes us right through to Terah, and his three sons. Verse 24, when Nahor had lived 29 years, he became the father of Terah, and, and Nahor lived after the birth of Terah 119 years, and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Terah. We're back to a man and his three sons. And the important thing about this last half of chapter 11 is who it introduces into the story. In chapter 5, Noah is presented with his three sons as the key figure in the next development. This family is presented as the new answer to the Babel failure. In particular, focusing on Terah's son, Abram. Have a look at right at the end of chapter 11, 27 to 32. Now these are the descendants of Terah. Terah was the father of Abram, Nahor and Haran, and Haran was the father of Lot. Haran died before his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram and Nahor took wives and, named, and the name of Abram's wife was Sarai and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren and she had no child. Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Very quickly, two of the sons are kind of taken out of the plot through death and migration. We say goodbye to Haran and Nahor. We're left with Shem's descendants on the way to the area in which Ham's descendants had settled in Canaan. 
I wonder how that curse is going to actually play out in the story. Canaan serving Shem, I wonder if that will happen. But the significant thing that sets up the rest of the Bible this really is the introduction to the whole Bible. It is a simple conversation between the Lord, the maker of the world, and with Abraham. Chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. It's another covenant, isn't it? Another agreement made with Abraham about how it will be between him and God from here on. There's a command, go to a particular place that the Lord will show you. And there's a promise with three aspects to it. Firstly, he wants to make Abram a great nation. has lots of descendants, a great nation coming from Abram. Among all the nations presented in the previous chapters, this one will be a great one. Actually, it's almost as crazy as getting Noah to build a box. That promise. Because we've all been told that Abram's wife is barren. She can't have kids. Abram's only got God's word to go on this one. The second aspect of the promise concerns blessing. God will make Abram's name great and bless him. He will give him God-given success. And that's not just for Abram's benefit, that blessing. But the third aspect is Abram will become a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. All those peoples we've just seen spread out. Those peoples that are now cursed with different languages. This one, through this one, God is going to bless all the peoples of the earth. Here's the new hope for the world in this narrative. The family of Abraham. Well, is there hope for a divided world? What this section does is give us a theological insight into what's behind the, the, the divided, scattered world in which we live. That's what it does. It's a working out of God's judgment on humanity's insistence on asserting independence from their creator. It, I'm not saying there's no place for analysis of what, what the problems are and working for peace. It's not what I'm saying. I'm saying theologically, what we see around us is a working out of the attitude which resists God's good purposes and ceases to trust, think and obey him. There's a virus loose in the world which infects everyone. That virus of not treating the creator as the creator. The divided, broken world we live in is evidence of it. That's what this passage teaches us. But it says so much more. This is a warning. It's a warning against buying into any human system which seeks to shut out God. Now the social air we breathe here in the city of Sydney shouts loudly that we don't need God. Uh, there's a multi-billion dollar education campaign in the form of advertising which is designed to keep us unsatisfied and unthankful to God for the good things he has given us all. Multi-billion dollar education campaign. Much of it appeals to our desire for autonomy and self-determination. Be who you want to be. Save and spend to make sure you are secure and independent. 
You can look confident, you can look free, you can look successful, you can look beautiful, you can look sexy. Your destiny is in your hands. Who is the most important person in the world to be satisfied and pampered? You are. Come on, join us in making a name for ourselves. The multi-billion dollar education program. self-determination and independence. This is warning against that kind of human system. Not only that, but God has been firmly relegated to a matter of opinion in our society. This is more of the air that we breathe. Truth and God just don't appear in the same category in our society's thing. The same that God, the God of the scriptures is the one true living creator of the universe does not compute one true living God is a man of opinion he's what you want him to be what you hope he will be your God is as good as anybody else's God that's what they tell us the term tolerant seems to be have been expanded to mean there are no truth statements about God allowed even but most of that is tolerated is an expression of religious opinion with no room for persuasion or comparison. Babel is alive and kicking in Sydney, Australia, 2003. It's a system designed to shut out God that we are all part of. This warns us, don't buy into it. Be aware of it. Resist it. There's a warning, whether you're Christian here today or not, There's a warning about getting caught up in a social system that encourages and enables you to shut out God. Don't buy the lie. There are religious versions of unifying against God. It's not just out there. Christians aren't immune from this. There are rigid religious and belief systems which are created to help us feel safe or certain, but which in effect shut out God. I was reading just in the paper the other day of a guy, an anti-abortionist, who murdered a doctor who performed abortions and said, God told me to do it. There's a system there. There's a way of thinking that's shut out God. It's trying to make life safe and clear and certain. But God's not part of it. He murdered. Unrepentant. God told me to do it. But Christians aren't immune for setting up this sort of unifying system that shuts out God. The passage also tells us that the hope for this divided world lies in the unquenchable grace of God. The unquenchable grace of God and his provision through Abram. That's what it tells us. That's where it ends. This is the hope for the world. Over the last few weeks we've got to know God better. He's been a character or a genuine player in the narrative. Witness and sinners spread, and he's not remained indifferent or, or unaffected. He's, he grieves him. He judges it justly. He never gives up on his creation. He remains committed to it. For every act of judgment, there's an act of grace, of blessing, of provision. That's the kind of God he is. That's where the hope for the undivided world is. For the divided world is. And each week, I've noted that the end of this genealogy that holds four to eleven together is Jesus Christ. In Jesus, there is no Jew nor Greek, no slave nor free, no male nor female, 
the old social distinctions disappear in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian community, functioning properly together in love, is an anticipation of a renewal of creation in which there will be no more enmity between human and human and humans and God. The present day descendants of Abraham, anyone who has entrusted their lives to the love and control of Jesus, are to be lights and blessings to the nations. As Abraham's descendants were always meant to be. That's the hope for our divided world. Let's pray. unified against you, brought the lie of those around us. We pray you help us to be lights to the nations. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.